Part 2 Section 8 of The Dark Flower This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Arturo J.R. 17 The Dark Flower by John Galsworthy Section 25 in those days, such as had served their country traveled, as befitted Spartans, in ordinary first-class carriages, and woke in the morning at La Roche or some strange-sounding place, for paler coffee and the pale brioche. So it was with Colonel and Mrs. Ercott and their niece, accompanied by books they did not read, viands they did not eat, and one somnolent Irishman returning from the east. In the disposition of legs there was the usual difficulty, no one quite liking to put them up, and all ultimately doing so, save Olive. More than once during that night, the colonel, lying on the seat opposite, awoke and saw her sitting, withdrawn into her corner, with eyes still open staring at that little head which he admired so much, upright and unmoving, in its dark straw toque against the cushion, he would become suddenly alert. Kicking the Irishman slightly in the effort, he would slip his legs down, bend across to her in the darkness, and, conscious of a faint fragrance as of violets, whisper huskily, Anything I can do for you, my dear? When she had smiled and shaken her head, he would retreat, and after holding his breath to see if Dolly were asleep, would restore his feet, slightly kicking the Irishman. After one such expedition, for full ten minutes he remained awake, wondering at her tireless immobility. For indeed she was spending this night entranced, with the feeling that Lennon was beside her, holding her hand in his. She seemed, actually, to feel the touch of his finger against the tiny patch of her bare palm, where the glove opened. It was wonderful, this uncanny communion in the dark, rushing night. She would not have slept for worlds. Never before had she felt so close to him, not even when he had kissed her that once under the olives, nor even when at the concert yesterday his arm pressed hers, and his voice whispered words she heard so thirstily and that golden fortnight passed and passed through her on an endless band of reminiscence. Its memories were like flowers, such scent and warmth and color in them, and of all, none perhaps quite so poignant as the memory of the moment at the door of their carriage, when he said, so low that she just heard, Goodbye, my darling. He had never before called her that, not even his touch on her cheek under the olives equaled the simple treasure of that word. And above the roar and clatter of the train and the snoring of the Irishman, it kept sounding in her ears, hour after dark hour. It was perhaps not wonderful that through all that night she never once looked the future in the face, made no plans, took no stock of her position, just yielded to memory. 
and to the half-dreamed sensation of his presence close beside her. Whatever might come afterwards, she was his this night. Such was the trance that gave to her the strange, soft, tireless immobility which so moved her uncle whenever he woke up. In Paris, they drove from station to station in a vehicle unfit for three, to stretch their legs, as the colonel said. Since he saw in his niece no signs of flagging, no regret, his spirits were rising, and he confided to Mrs. Urquhart in the buffet at the Gare du Nord when Olive had gone to wash that he did not think there was much in it, after all, looking at the way she'd traveled. But Mrs. Urquhart answered, Haven't you ever noticed that Olive never shows what she does not want to? She has not got those eyes for nothing. What eyes? Eyes that see everything, and seem to see nothing. Conscious that something was hurting her, the colonel tried to take her hand. But Mrs. Aircott rose quickly and went where he could not follow. Thus suddenly deserted, the colonel brooded, drumming on the little table. What now? Dolly was unjust. Poor Dolly. He was as fond of her as ever. Of course. How could he help Olive's being young and pretty? How could he help looking after her and wanting to save her from this mess? Thus he sat wondering, dismayed by the unreasonableness of women. It did not enter his head that Mrs. Ercott had been almost as sleepless as his niece, watching through closed eyes every one of those little expeditions of his, and saying to herself, Ah, he doesn't care how I travel. She returned serene enough, concealing her grief and soon they were once more whirling towards England. But the future had begun to lay its hand on Olive. The spell of the past was already losing power. The sense that it had all been a dream grew stronger every minute. In a few hours she would re-enter the little house, close under the shadow of that old Wren church, which reminded her somehow of childhood, and her austere father with his chiseled face the meeting with her husband. How go through that? And tonight? But she did not care to contemplate tonight. And all those tomorrows, wherein there was nothing she had to do of which it was reasonable to complain, yet nothing she could do without feeling that all the friendliness and zest and color was out of life, and she was a prisoner. Into those tomorrows she felt she would slip back, out of her dream, lost, with hardly perhaps an effort. To get away to the house on the river, where her husband came only at weekends, had hitherto been a refuge. Only she would not see Mark there, unless... Then, with the thought that she would, must still see him sometimes, all again grew faintly glamorous. If only she did see him, what would the rest matter? Never again as it had before. The colonel was reaching down her handbag. His cheery, Looks as if it would be rough, aroused her. Glad to be alone, and tired enough now, she sought the ladies' cabin and slept through the crossing, till the voice of the old stewardess awakened her. 
You've had a nice sleep. We're alongside, miss. Ah, if she were but that, now. She had been dreaming that she was sitting in a flowery field, and Lennon had drawn her up by the hands, with the words, We're here, my darling. On deck, the colonel, laden with bags, was looking back for her, and trying to keep a space between him and his wife. He signaled with his chin. Threading her way towards him, she happened to look up. By the rails of the pier above, she saw her husband. He was leaning there, looking intently down. His tall, broad figure made the people on each side of him seem insignificant. The clean-shaved, square-cut face, with those almost epileptic, forceful eyes, had a stillness and intensity beside which the neighboring faces seemed to disappear. She saw him very clearly, even noting the touch of silver in his dark hair on each side under his straw hat, noting that he seemed too massive for his neat blue suit. His face relaxed. He made a little movement of one hand. Suddenly it shot through her. Suppose Mark had traveled with them, as he had wished to do. Forever and ever now, that dark, massive creature Smiling down at her was her enemy, from whom she must guard and keep herself if she could. Keep, at all events, each one of her real thoughts and hopes. She could have writhed and cried out. Instead, she tightened her grip on the handle of her bag and smiled. Though so skilled in knowledge of his moods, she felt in his greeting his fierce grip of her shoulders, the smoldering of some feeling the nature of which she could not quite fathom. His voice had a grim sincerity. Glad you're back. Thought you were never coming. Resigned to his charge, a feeling of sheer physical faintness so beset her that she could hardly reach the compartment he had reserved. It seemed to her that, for all her foreboding, she had not till this moment had the smallest inkling of what was now before her. And at his muttered, must we have the old fossils in? She looked back to assure herself that her uncle and aunt were following. To avoid having to talk, she feigned to have traveled badly, leaning back with closed eyes in her corner. If only she could open them and see, not this square-jawed face with its intent gaze of possession, but that other with its eager eyes humbly adoring her. The interminable journey ended all too soon. She clung quite desperately to the colonel's hand on the platform at Charing Cross. When his kind face vanished, she would be lost indeed. Then, in the closed cab, she heard her husband's, Aren't you going to kiss me? and submitted to his embrace. She tried so hard not to think, What does it matter? It's not I. Not my soul, my spirit, only my miserable lips. She heard him say, You don't seem too glad to see me. And then, I hear you had young Lennon out there. What was he doing? She felt the turmoil of sudden fear, wondered whether she was showing it, lost it in unnatural alertness, all in the second before she answered, Oh, just a holiday. Some seconds passed, and then he said, You didn't mention him in your letters. 
she answered coolly. Didn't I? We saw a good deal of him. She knew that he was looking at her. An inquisitive, half-menacing regard. Why, oh why, could she not then and there cry out, And I love him, do you hear? I love him! So awful did it seem to be denying her love with these half-lies. But it was all so much more grim and hopeless than even she had thought. How inconceivable, now, that she had ever given herself up to this man for life. If only she could get away from him to her room, and scheme and think. For his eyes never left her, traveling over her with their pathetic greed, their menacing inquiry, till he said, Well, it's not done you any harm. You look very fit. But his touch was too much even for her self-command, and she recoiled as if he had struck her. What's the matter? Did I hurt you? It seemed to her that he was jeering, then realized as vividly that he was not, and the full danger to her, perhaps to mark himself, of shrinking from this man, striking her with all its pitiable force, she made a painful effort, slipped her hand under his arm, and said, I'm very tired. You startled me. But he put her hand away and turning his face, stared out of the window. And so they reached their home. When he had left her alone, she remained where she was standing, by her wardrobe, without sound or movement, thinking, What am I going to do? How am I going to live? End of section 25